Good morning. It's very nice to be, oops, I'm being magnified, <laughs> as in magnify the Lord. I'm delighted to be with you and to have this opportunity first to check in with each other and uh, then to think a bit about our vocation as Christ's church. Um, I'd like us to begin with a word of prayer. Loving God, we thank you for the gift of this day in the, the divine schedule of our lives that you draw us together every Sabbath to be equipped for what you have us to do the rest of the week. And we ask that what we do today, what we hear, what we think and pray about, what we determine to do will serve your purposes for us and for this world that you love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, you probably know, is Pentecost Sunday, uh, the birthday of the church. Uh, I always have wonderful associations with Pentecost Sunday from my many years in Germany because they celebrate this Sunday by cutting birch branches and covering the front of the church in green birch branches as a sign of new life. And uh, so I keep going to American churches on Pentecost to see, does anybody have any birch branches around? And I, I haven't found them. But it's a, it's a particularly important day in the church calendar for theological reasons. There's a sense in which the whole biblical story comes together in the person and work of Jesus Christ and everything reaches its climax at the cross and at the resurrection. And then at Pentecost, everything opens up and it becomes the gospel for the world. Years ago, one scholar explained the fundamental drama of the biblical story of God's salvation uh, with the terms centrifugal and centripetal. And these two technical terms, thing being drawn into the center, centripetal, being driven out to the margin, centripetal. And he said, Israel's story from Abraham onward is a centripetal story. God's work for the nations is through this select people in a particular time and place with a particular lineage uh, leading up to the line of David and ultimately uh, what the, the birth and life and ministry of Jesus is very much symbolized by all of those genealogies at the beginning of Matthew 1 and early in Luke. And then at Easter, and especially on Ascension Day and Pentecost, everything turns around. And the dominant theme from Pentecost onward is, go ye into all the nations. Mission, God's mission to the world. That mission has been expressed up until now in a coming together in Israel, in the Holy Land, in the Holy Building, even in the Holy Room, the Holy of Holies. And now the veil of the temple is rent. One no longer has to come to the temple to encounter God authentically, but rather this witness drives the church into all the world. And that begins what I will call the apostolic mission. And that's a technical term for what happens from Pentecost Day, Acts 2 onward. Remember in Acts 2, uh, the, the community is gathered in a room waiting, following the instructions of Jesus to wait until the Spirit comes upon them. And then that happens, and it happens to be a major Jewish festival, the Pentecost festival, in which there are Jews from all of the civilized countries of the world gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate. Uh, and there's, in Acts 1, there's this list of all of the places from which they come. It's the, it's the classic trial of the young theologian learning to read scripture in public. 
and to pronounce all those place names in Acts 2 before you get into the true story where it says Peter standing in the midst of them. That's a wonderful phrase because Peter is speaking on behalf of the whole gathered assembly of followers of Jesus. Peter speaking on the behalf of them announces and then he tells the story of the gospel and that's the beginning of the Christian mission. As all of those Jews with all of those tongues spread out again to their homes, the mission begins from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. That, that phrase in Acts 1-9 is really the table of contents of Acts. It tells us what's going to now happen. We're going to learn about how God's mission is expanding centrifugally from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, which is the other side of the tracks, the place that no pious Jew wants to go, but Jesus has already gone, to the, to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts uh, then lays out the drama of this movement by focusing on one of the first great theological struggles of the apostolic church, and that is, what do we do about Gentile Christians? If a, if a Gentile becomes a Christian, does that person have to become uh, legally and religiously a Jew, which means adopting the dietary laws and ob observing all of the festivals of Judaism? It means circumcision. It means becoming a part of this distinctive community going all the way back to Abraham. Or does God intend something new? And it's the great, if you will, gospel victory of the book of Acts <clears throat> that the early Christian movement recognizes that God now reaches out to all people in all cultures and no longer requires that one be a part of a particular culture. This is the beginning of the genuine, to use the technical term, Catholicity of the church. The church for all nations, for all peoples. Of course, Matthew's Great Commission says that. Yeah, all, all authority is given to Christ in heaven and on earth. Therefore, as you're going into the world, disciple the, our translations all say nations, which is not really very helpful. I think it's much better to say disciple the ethnicities. You have the freedom and you have the Spirit's power to translate the gospel so that the story continues in every culture. And that's what the apostolic mission is about. From Pentecost onward, symbolized by all of those uh, Jewish Believers gathered in Jerusalem on that particular holy day, hearing the gospel in their own language and going back to their homelands to spread the story. From that time on, the mission of the church, the mission of the apostles is outward. Apostolate actually means sent ones. It's mission language. The mission language in the New Testament is far stronger than we're aware of because the way the translations work out, we don't very often use the word mission. I always ask Presbyterian pastors, at least, where in the New Testament do you find mission as, as language? It always leads to a long pause. I might, might, does anybody know? Where do we find mission as terminology, as actual language in the New Testament? Well, this is, this is the standard situation. It's because, unfortunately, none of you are reading your Gospels of John in Latin. And if you were reading them in Latin, you would know that Jesus says to the disciples when he enters the room the, with the closed door on, later on Easter day, says, peace be with you, this great uh, climax to John's gospel, really. He says, as my Father has sent me, so I send you. 
And if you read that in Latin, instead of the Vulgate translation, you would read, as my father has missioned me, so I mission you. In the, in the Germanic part of the world, the basic word for mission in German is Sendung, sending, or in Dutch, sending. I used, I used to spend time working with folks from the Sending Seminary in Holland, a, a mission seminary that focused everything on the sending of the church. So that's where we start, or that's where, where Pentecost takes us in our understanding of what God is doing in this creation that he loves and redeems. It starts with the turnaround, the movement from the centripetal to the centripetal as mission begins from Jerusalem outward to the ends of the earth. And the strategy of that mission, what the New Testament demonstrates, what the book of Acts doc documents, the strategy was always the same. How it worked out was different from one place to the next, but the, the strategy was to form a community of witnesses. The apostles' mission was not, and I've said this in this room before, you even allowed me to come back. Uh, the mission was not to save souls. That's too small an understanding of what's actually going on at Pentecost and with the whole turnaround of God's history. The mission was the forming of witnessing Christians in one culture after another, in one city after another, to continue the apostolic proclamation, to continue what is begun at Pentecost. God loves the world, John teaches us, and therefore the disciples are sent, as Jesus himself was sent, in order to carry that witness into the world. So when we're thinking about the formation of the church, we're thinking about a continuation of the story of Acts. We're thinking about what actually was happening. That's documented for us in the, new, in the Bible by the way the Bible itself is put together. What do, we, what do we have in the 27 books of the New Testament? Well, it's a basic textbook for missionary formation. Now, I know we don't think that way. This is an unaccustomed language. I, I should perhaps just back up and say we come from centuries of what I would call mission neglect in Christian thinking. Uh, and it's, uh, it's an understandable development. We could spend the rest of this morning discussing this complicated history, but I won't do that. But I say just this much. From the time that the Christian movement moved from the margins to the center and was invested with power and privilege and buildings and office, uh, a, the apostolic mission got changed. It became more and more where we began, and now we're someplace else. And so we find as the Christian movement expands from the fourth century from Constantine onward that we, we are thinking less and less about mission and more and more about savedness. Who are the saved and how do they remain saved? And, and, and we even forget in Europe for centuries, that there are other worlds and populations out there. So for centuries, whenever we read all the world, we thought we had it all right here. And the Pope was in charge of all of it because they didn't know about the rest. So we don't have a history, uh, a, a history of Christian thinking and Christian practice that focuses upon the apostolic mission, which was the strategy that started us. That, that's why... Uh, it's so important for us to, to get back into the New Testament to understand where does the story begin 
And what does that mean for who we are and what we're all about today? Uh, we don't have mission at the heart of our theology of the church. We don't think about sentness as the basic description of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We, we, what we believe and what we focus on is, a, is very important. The Christian life, the blessings of salvation, the, all the ways that God uh, enables us to be his servants in history. I mean, all of that is very good, but there's this, there's this missing centering point. What makes the, trans, the change from centripetal, centripetal to centripetal, that, that is what is lacking. It's really interesting, I think, that a, a passage like the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel, I already quoted it this morning, all power is given to me in heaven and on earth, therefore, as you are going into the world, uh, disciple the ethnicities, baptize them, teach them. That phrase, that wonderful climax to Matthew's Gospel is over, for a, over a thousand years is not used as referring to the church now. It refers only to the church then. And something has happened in the meantime. What has happened is we've become a so-called Christian culture. And in a so-called Christian culture, as our whole European history teaches us, uh, we don't need evangelization because we're already evangelized. And this is, this is a, a very serious challenge for us today because now we're, re we're entering into a time in which that is now our history. The idea that we were an all-Christian all uh, all society is, is dying. And I just spent three weeks in the, in the Northwest, Washington and British Columbia, what they call Cascadia, a very distinctive culture. And it's very clear that in Cascadia, Christendom hasn't happened yet. They, they, they don't, uh, there's no sense of a common Christian history in those cultures. Uh, and it's, it's actually a wonderful place to evangelize. Uh, we'll get back to that theme. Because people have no idea. Uh, they don't have all the negative associations with the history of Christianity that we have in, in many ways in the West. Okay, what I've established thus far is that Pentecost Sunday and the Pentecost celebration points us to the central reason there is church, which is the sharing of the good news as it began on that day when the Holy Spirit empowered the apostolic company to begin global mission, to begin the... And they did that by proclaiming the gospel and planting congregations. Let's look a little bit more carefully at how that apostolic mission actually worked. What actually happened? If we, this is why we have the book of Acts. And, and some very important passages in the epistles. Because we see that they went out and they established contact in a great variety of ways and they began telling the story. And they told the story in open spaces, on riversides, in marketplaces, in the, in the large lobbies of wealthy homes. And they, they all, wherever there was an opportunity, the apostolic messengers would tell the story of all that had happened leading up to Pentecost. And then would say, as we, we read over, think of Paul's proclamation on Mars Hill, now all this is fulfilled. This now becomes very important because now in Christ, the whole history turns around and the world is invited to respond. And there are respondents. And the New Testament never gives us a kind of add water and stir method for getting, making a person a Christian. 
of each person's story is a different story. Each person encounters the apostolic message in a, in a different way, but the outcome is always the formation of a witnessing community. And that formation takes place in two basic steps that are constantly going on. Um, and they are symbolized for us by the way the New Testament is put together. The New Testament is the textbook for the formation of witnessing communities. All of the writings that are gathered in the New Testament are the result of the formation of new believers in new communities to continue their vocation. Uh, vocare is the name of our series, and, and that's so essential, vocation, vocare, to continue their calling now to be witnesses to the radically new news about God's love in Jesus Christ. This is what the apostles and the apostolic mission were doing. They were planting communities of believers. And that formation that they experienced uh, generated what is for us the New Testament. Uh, we could spend, of course, a couple of hours talking about the formation of the New Testament in, in the first 300 years of our history. But this, the summation of that story is these were the witnesses, the written witnesses, that God's Spirit constantly and powerfully used to continue the apostolic strategy, to continue the formation of witnessing communities as one by one people responded to the good news of Jesus Christ and said, I want to become his follower. And that meant their being drawn into these, these technical terms, incorporated into, become a part of the body, become a part of the movement of Christian witness, which is gradually stretching outward, ultimately, around the world. And even the way the, the, the New Testament is put together is instructive for what this formation is all about. Because we, we can, I think, sort of broadly say the New Testament focuses, first of all, in the earthly ministry of Jesus in the four Gospels. The four, the four Gospels make it very clear. This is the story of Jesus in Nazareth, and it begins in different places in his career, but it tells basically the same story, leading up to the events of Holy Week, and always, always ending, all four Gospels end with a mission mandate. We've already talked about Matthew 28, Disciple the Nations, or John, as my Father has sent me, so I send you. That's the climax of John. All four Gospels do that because when a person responded to the good news of God's love in Christ, that person was drawn into the school of Christ. That person became a disciple of Christ in order to become part of the apostolic sentness, the apostolic mission. So just as Jesus called 12 followers and schooled them rigorously for three years, Every respondent to the apostolic message needed to be drawn into the same process of formation. And that's what the four Gospels were originally written to do. The four Gospels are, are not a mystery. Uh, the point of the story is, is clear from the very beginning. There's no surprise. It starts, all of them start out by making it very clear that in Jesus Christ, God was present and acting, completing God's work of salvation. Uh, they, 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 they give the plot away from the very beginning. They may, and that's very important, because what that's saying is that the entire story of Jesus' earthly ministry is essential if the apostolic mission is to continue. We 
in, who are in all of the generations after the first century, now thousands of them, we enter into the story as disciples being formed for apostolate. And so we go to school with Jesus by reading and studying and learning and memorizing and, and practicing the four Gospels so that we, like the original 12, can graduate into the apostolate. This is the reason that uh, when we're thinking about the, the vocation of the church, uh, we, we're, we're cautious when people talk about discipleship as the goal of our calling. No, discipleship is the means by which our calling is carried out. It's through being discipled by Jesus and in his community of followers with all of the resources and all of the understandings of the gospel that have developed over the centuries, is that as we do that, we join then the earthly disciples to become a part of the apostolic strategy, the apostolic mission. Because that's what defines us. The Church of Jesus Christ, the Church of Pentecost, exists as God's instrument for the healing of the world. As God's instrument of good news, so that all that God has accomplished on the cross will now be made available to all who will hear and respond. And that's what makes us all Pentecostals. I, I'm very insistent that we can't give away the words Pentecostal and charismatic. We're all charismatic. If we know Jesus Christ as Lord and confess him as Lord, we have been given the charism of faith. And so whether you raise your hands or not, or I always say the Episcopalians, they do it with one hand because the other hand has to hold the prayer book. I mean, there's sort of different ways of doing that. But the basic issue is that we are all followers of Christ because the charism of faith has been given to us. And, and, and each person's story is different in that regard, isn't it? One of the glorious things about Christian community is discovering the, the, those manifold differences. But as those who have received that gift, we then, with the disciples, as my father has sent me, are sent. And Pentecost, therefore, necessarily leads us outward into the fullness of the church's mission. Uh, and this is why in the, in the work that I have been a part of for the last years, we've started using the word missional. I've talked about this before when I've been here with you. Uh, we put that A-L at the end of the word mission to make it very clear that mission is not simply one of the programs of the church or one of the... One of the uh, uh, lines in your budget. You know, generally, I find in Protestant churches that mission is defined as the things we do when we spend money on somebody else besides ourselves. And that's a very narrow and thin understanding of mission. What we're talking about in light of what happened at Pentecost and what is going on in the scriptural record, what we're talking about is the focus upon God's healing of the nations, which now defines what the church is for. The church was not the point of the apostolic mission. The church was the instrument of the apostolic mission. So of course, the wonder of salvation is at the heart of our story, of our life, of our liturgy, of our action, but it's all for the sake of making it known. You shall be my witnesses. That's the statement, that's not a command, that's a statement. Jesus is telling the disciples, whether you like it or not, what happens to you now is you are witnesses. The only decisions you make is whether you're going to be a relatively good witness or not. You may be an unreliable witness. The New Testament is full of instruction about that as well. 
to round out the story of the New Testament, then, the, I talked about the four Gospels as discipleship for apostolate. Discipleship for a life of witness. And I then would suggest to you that the remainder of the New Testament, particularly the, the epistles, um, Paul and then Peter and John and, and even the book of Revelation, these are all about the ways in which uh, witnessing communities uh, have to learn or struggle with challenges to their vocation. They're, they're troubleshooting. Their apostolic mission continues. Paul's a good example. When he, when he evangelized in Philippi, he stayed with them for quite a while. He taught them the gospel. Evangelization in the New Testament always led further. You never stopped with evangelization. Evangelization led to formation for apostolate. And so we can imagine when Paul stayed in Ephesus or in Thessalonica or in Philippi or wherever he stayed as a, as a wandering missionary, he continued the teaching and training and equipping of the emerging community so that they could be about their vocation when the apostles left. And that's exactly the situation we find reflected in the New Testament. The apostle hears that there are real problems in Corinth. The Corinthian Christian church was a, a difficult place. They needed a lot of help. Uh, they were Christians. They were followers of Christ and they'd received the gospel, but they were getting pretty confused about some very basic issues, particularly with issues having to do with Corinthian culture, which was so pagan and so, uh, in many ways, morally destitute that it was the church was getting wrapped up in stuff that wasn't at all spiritually healthy. So Paul writes to them, and in the case of 1 Corinthians, it is really a letter of correction, of discipline, right through to the, to, to the last verse. He writes to them to continue their formation for apostolic witness. They can't be a faithful witnessing community if they are abusing the gifts of the Spirit, if they are practicing divisiveness, the party of Apollos and the party of Peter and the party of Paul, or whatever the, the various problems are that we read about in the epistle. And so Paul writes to them and admonishes them, you've got to work on this. This is, this is what the gospel really means for you. You need to be changed so that you can be faithful witnesses. So that your vocare, your calling, can continue to be carried out. And that's basically this challenge that we face right up until today. How do we carry out faithful witness as called and gathered communities? What does that look like? <clears throat> I uh, would like to suggest to you that one of the cru crucial things for us to understand is the many the many levels or layers of spiritual action that are going on in the formation of a witnessing community. What is going on in Acts or in, in, in any of the, of the New Testament communities as they be, begin to become witnessing communities? Well, they hear the gospel and they're trained in the gospel. They're actually taught the whole history of Israel. We see this reflected in all of the references in the New Testament to Old Testament stories. So whether they're Gentiles or not, they need to understand that their history began with a man named Abraham centuries earlier in a time of entirely different civilizations when people were migrating from, the, uh, uh, from Mesopotamia to the coast of the Mediterranean. And one of them was named Abraham. And that's how the story begins. Go back to Genesis 12. All of the new Christians who were being uh, 
trained to be witnesses, learn that story. They learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. They, they learn what the disciples learn by living with and watching Jesus. It, we don't look at this very much, and this is to our own detriment, but from the second century on, the Christian church was developing resources for the continuing formation of witnessing communities. And there, I asked you to bring the uh, whiteboard up today, so I'm going to be sure and use it at least once. One of the things, well, I thought I was, just a moment. I know there's, there's another one here. Oh, this is it. Well, it doesn't work after all. Yes. Well, have you ever heard the word catechesis? Catechism, catechism, catechesis. It's a very important term in Reformation history. It actually is a very important term for what's going on in the formation of witnessing communities because for a community to begin to function as a witness in a particular uh, culture, which means translating the gospel, making it understandable, uh, telling the story in such a way that people can hear it and respond and, and, and recognize that the spirit is calling and, and then take the step of faith. When that process began, the early Christian church said, We're, we need to then go into a process of learning. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a witness for Jesus? And that learning is called catechesis. It's the it's not what you do in order to be saved. They get that wrong. Catechesis is what you do because you are saved. Because your salvation is not only known to you, it's sealed and it now defines who you are and how you lead your life and what you hope for. And that's the glorious hope that draws us all together as followers of Christ. But what that hope actually means is, is then you know, enormously challenging and we constantly are finding issues present themselves and we don't know for sure how would a follower of Jesus Christ deal with this particular challenge. And the, the catechetical process continues what's going on in the New Testament epistles by interpreting and teaching the faith to one generation after another as they respond. And they become witnessing communities because they're being catechized, taught Jesus. They're learning Jesus in order to be his followers and to be his witnesses. And that's what congregations are for. There are several levels of vocation going on in, in any New Testament congregation, up to and including us right now. The congregation consists of all those whom God has called, who will make a confession of faith. They, it's never standardized. You can't reduce it to one, one way you do it. We don't have to write down in our Sunday school book on such and such a day, at such and such a time, I accepted Jesus as my Savior. Remember that? I, I did that about 150 years ago. Um, but all of us have encountered Christ in such a way that now Christ enters in, claims us, and begins to form us for his purposes. That's why there's so much emphasis, particularly in the New Testament writings, on formation, on learning, on growth, on running the race. On, uh, it, you see it, for instance, in the therefores of the New Testament. You know, Paul's arguing, great argument of the gospel in Romans 1 to 11. Great, wonderful theological exploration of the powerful meaning of the gospel. And then Romans 12, 1, therefore, and now comes 
what this means, what this looks like in your community if you are a faithfully witnessing community. And so we are catechized by learning Romans 1 to 11. We spend all our lives doing that in order then to respond to the therefore and say, yes, God, how do you want me? How have you called me? How have you equipped me to be a part of this witnessing community and to make my particular contribution to its witness? That's the process of ongoing catechesis. So uh, in, it's, it's interesting, in the early Christian church, second century, third century, fourth century, catechesis uh, lasted one year, two years, three years. It was done by the bishop or by uh, mature Christians in a community. And at some point in that process, you reached the consensus that you were ready to be baptized. And so you were baptized when the catechetical process had brought you to that point. Which always raises the really interesting question, were they Christians before they were baptized? Was the, the, was the catechumen, that's the person being catechized, we're learning a whole lot of new vocabulary here. Uh, when the catechumen becomes now uh, a candidate for baptism, does that mean that finally this person has become a Christian? This is why the question of how do you decide who's a Christian, who's not a Christian, is completely irrelevant. That's God's business. We don't make that determination. We don't know how God's story with a particular person might conclude. For us, every person who says, I am a follower of Christ, is my sister or my brother, period. That's, that's very clear in the New Testament. So all of this divisiveness, particularly amongst us Protestants, going on today is very, very sad because it's really failing to understand that in Jesus Christ we are already one, whether we like it or not. That's true of us. And the early church practiced that by baptizing after years of instruction. The Catholic Church has reclaimed that. This is becoming more and more their practice, adult baptism uh, with catechesis. It's a fascinating story. Maybe sometime we should get together and look at a couple of Catholic documents because I think we could learn something from them. Well, the New Testament community, the church that Jesus is founding uh, through his witnesses, continues the process of formation, translates the gospel into the culture into which God has put it. That's the challenge of the gospel for Gentiles versus the gospel for Jews. And what kind of a decision-making process that evokes. And it also then is the basic, I would say, basic uh, theme that we turn to when we ask ourselves the question, how faithful are we to our vocation as a concrete, visibly gathered community in a certain place at a certain time? I'd suggest that's kind of the liturgical question of Pentecost Sunday. How faithful are we to our calling? How, how well do we understand that God has brought us together for God's purposes? How are we dealing uh, in, United in United States culture with the tremendous individualism and egocentricity that we bring into the church? How many times have I heard somebody say, well, I'm just looking for a church that meets my needs? Well, in terms of Pentecost and the apostolic vocation of the community, meeting my needs is a very small part of what we're about. What we're about is God's work of healing and the healing of the nations and how we are drawn into that and how our vocation every week from Monday to Saturday is, is the actual opportunity for us to demonstrate what it means to know Jesus Christ. 
what kind of a difference that makes in the way we lead our daily lives. The dailiness is one of the most compelling and important aspects of witness. You know, not the spectacular conversion stories, but the dailiness. Uh, just as, as we see in the four Gospels, the living with Jesus every day and learning from Jesus at every turn what it is, what it means to be his follower. So this is a way of framing Pentecost and the celebration of Pentecost uh, around this question. Why form a church in a particular place? Why do that? And uh, I, think to, uh, I think every congregation should be, should be thinking about that question. What, what is the reason we are here? What is the distinctive story of God's faithfulness or our unfaithfulness that has brought us to this time and this place for our vocation? Now, I, I happen to know from conversations with Jason, he, he was, I, I should say, in, in response to his, uh, his introduction, he was one of the best students I ever taught uh, now many years ago at Princeton. But uh, I think there's a, a, a real reason particularly on Pentecost Sunday and in the Pentecost season, for us to think about our vocation, to ask ourselves, what do we exist for? What is it that we have in common? What is it that we are struggling with together? And what is it that we need really to work on in order for us to be more faithful? And I know that your story as a congregation is a fascinating one because you've sort of gone as a congregation sort of up to the abyss it almost fell over, if I'm not mistaken. And in remarkable ways, in, some, in a story that I think is quite distinctive, you have heard or reheard your sense of vocation, and now you have a thriving congregation of people who want seriously to serve Jesus Christ. And that's my, my read as an outsider. And I'm wondering, in light of what I've talked about this morning and how I've laid out vocation, Pentecost, are, are being instruments of God's apostolic mission. What, what does this do for you? How does this help you think about uh, Central Presbyterian and where you are now and what you're for? Does anybody have any thoughts or questions about that theme? 